0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence, the icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences, researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org/nomis, that's N O M I S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 20th, 2013. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week on the show, we look back at the year in science, from the breakthrough of the year to our top news stories. Robert Kuntz is here to share some important scientific findings named runners-up for the breakthrough of the year. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Let's start with a few of the biology landmarks. CRISPR, the genome editing technique based on the immune system of bacteria, actually got a mention in our runners-up list last year. What happened this year to keep it in the spotlight?
1: A lot of work. People are actually using this technique to do what it's supposed to do. Now, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Now, that sounds pretty daunting, but basically what it means is that bacteria have this special kind of DNA that codes for proteins that slices up viruses. So viruses attack bacteria, they come in, and The bacteria just whack them to pieces. And it turns out that the way they do this is through a protein called CAS9, which um, is like a, a knife to cut DNA. It turns out that this protein knife can also be used as a scalpel to cut up DNA of other kinds of organisms, too. And scientists can use it to do sort of microsurgery on DNA of different kinds of organisms. This year, they actually started doing that, and they did it in a lot of research animals, um, rats and mice, of course, zebrafish, which I love to do, nematode worms, and then starting to do it in human beings as well.
0: All right. So we have quite a few runners up this year that relate to neuroscience, one of which is the clarity technique. What is it and how did it make things clear when it comes to the brain?
1: It makes brains clear. You can actually see through a brain with this technique. Now, to understand how it works, you have to understand what makes things opaque. And what does that is they scatter light so you can't see through them. Now, brain scatter light, brain tissue scatters light, mainly through fatty molecules in the tissue called lipids. And what Clarity does is it replaces these lipids with this clear gel. So it turns the tissue transparent. Now, it doesn't turn everything in the brain transparent. That wouldn't be any good. It leaves some things. It leaves the nerve cells, the neurons, and other structures in there that scientists want to study. So basically what you've got is a window on this brain, and then you can use stains and tags and other kinds of molecules to single out the structures that you want to study or count. One thing that neuroscientists like to do is Count how many nerve cells there are in a piece of brain. Now they can do that really easily because the brain itself is just turned (laughs) see-through.
0: We have some really cool video footage of that on the site for this. It's it's great. In physics, we have a runner-up on cosmic rays and their origins. What's the big news on these high-energy particles?
1: They're mostly protons, which are just hydrogen nuclei with single charges, but there are a few other kinds of particles in there, too. And uh, the ones that reach Earth, a lot of them have the, they come in at incredibly high energy, and, and scientists have wondered where they come from. Now, there are only a few places out there that have enough energy to produce them. So um, astrophysicists have thought for a long time that they come from a mechanism in the um, shock waves around exploding stars called supernovas. But they haven't been sure because they haven't been able to trace them back to any particular supernova sources. The reason is that because these cosmic rays have charges, when they run into magnetic fields in space, they get knocked off course. And so you can't trace them back to where they came from. So what happens is uh, this year scientists did something really smart. It turns out space isn't empty. There are some molecules out there. It's more like a really thin gas. So, when these shock waves send matter from these exploding stars into space, there are going to be some collisions. Atoms from the star are going to run into atoms in space. And one of the things that happens when that collision occurs is some of them will produce these particles called pions, which then disintegrate into gamma rays. Now, gamma rays aren't affected by the magnetic fields in space. They just go pretty much on a straight course to Earth. So if you detect them here, you can trace them back to where they came from. And they're kind of like a smoking gun for these uh, cosmic rays that we've been wondering about. So this year what happened was an orbiting observatory called the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope found these cosmic rays coming from a couple of supernova remnants, these debris clouds left over from supernovas out in space. And so scientists went, aha, you know, we thought this is where they came from. And now we finally have some evidence that that's true.
0: In addition to our breakthrough, which we'll get to in a little bit, we have a roundup of notable events in the issue the end of the year issue. Genomes of the year, invertebrate of the year, fossil of the year. What's the fossil of the year, Robert?
1: We made up these extra headings for things that were just too good to leave out, you know. And um, in this case, we do have a fossil of the year, and it's this skull from a cave in the Republic of Georgia. Not the state of Georgia. This is the one in the Caucasus Mountains. It's been um, a very good source of these fossils of human ancestors. Now, in this case, this fossil is a skull that's just in amazingly pristine condition. It's all there and it's 1.8 million years old. It looks very different from other skulls of about that age that people have found in the same general location. It has a smaller brain than they do, but it has a more pronounced jaw. So it's got more of a face than these other ones do. Now, these other ones have been classified as Homo erectus. And Homo erectus... um, evolved in Africa about 100,000 years before this skull came along, you know. What this tells scientists is that there's a possibility that Homo erectus was much more diverse than they had thought before, that maybe a lot of these other human species that people have been classifying as different were actually all Homo erectus. It was just very different kinds of Homo erectus. There's a lot of information still to be gleaned from this thing, but that's uh, definitely our fossil of the year.
0: Okay, and what about the vertebrate of the year? What animal took the prize in that category?
1: Okay, the vertebrate of the year is the naked mole rat. And, you know, if it were up to me, the naked mole rat would probably be the vertebrate of every year because they are just so cool. They're as ugly as as you can imagine. They have this social structure that's just like that of social insects. So they live like bees in a beehive or ants in an ant colony. But that's not what made it the vertebrate of this year. What made it the vertebrate of this year is, is that scientists found out that these naked mole rats live an incredibly long time for a small animal like that. They live 30 years and they don't develop cancer. Now, you know how people used to think that sharks don't get cancer? Well, it turns out sharks do get cancer, but naked mole rats don't. No one's exactly sure why, but they think that they have this kind of sugar compound in their systems that protects them against cancer. Scientists are just going to be studying these things intently to find out how they do it.
0: Okay. Well, Robert, thanks for giving us some highlights. Everyone should look at all of our end-of-the-year coverage online at www.sciencemag.org, which includes a behind-the-scenes video with Robert in which he lifts the curtain just a little bit on how these things get decided. Thanks, Robert.
1: My pleasure.
0: Robert Kuntz is a Deputy News Editor for Science. Next up, we have Jennifer Cousin-Frankel, who's been covering the breakthrough of the year, cancer immunotherapy. Now, this is a treatment that harnesses a patient's immune system to fight their cancer. How does that work in practice?
2: Yeah, so this is something that researchers have been trying to do for a, a very long time, many decades, and it's been a real struggle to get it to work against cancer. When we think about cancer treatment, normally we think about targeting a tumor. So we think about a drug that will be given to a patient and will somehow destroy the cancer cells and destroy the tumor. And that is how most cancer treatment works or is supposed to work. Cancer immunotherapy is quite different. Instead of targeting the tumor, you're actually targeting the immune system in different ways to try and get the immune system to then attack the tumor. So it's really a very different way of thinking about treating cancer.
0: What kinds of cancers has this treatment been targeted towards? What has been the focus of the clinical trials that have come out?
2: Well, in our breakthrough story, we talk about two different kinds of immunotherapies that are quite different, but both have generated a lot of excitement. So one involves antibody treatments, and those essentially target T-cells in the immune system and sort of release a break on T-cells that then allows T-cells to attack tumor cells. The antibodies have been tested particularly in melanoma, in metastatic advanced melanoma, and and there is one antibody that has been approved to treat metastatic melanoma. More recently they have been tested against other cancers including kidney cancer and lung cancer, but really people are experimenting with them against all kinds of solid tumors right now. The numbers for some of those are very small. Most of the data we have is for melanoma, but increasingly we are getting data for other solid tumors. So that's one therapy, the antibodies. The other involves genetically engineering T-cells, and this is ill-immunotherapy, but it's a very different kind of treatment. In this case, you take blood out of a patient, you extract the T-cells, and then you genetically modify them so that they will target certain molecules on the tumor cells and then you put them back into the patient and that therapy has been used mainly in blood cancers right now particularly different forms of leukemia. Mm
0: -hmm. How has the success been of these different treatments in clinical trials?
2: That's a good question and it's something researchers are actually still trying to figure out because some of these are pretty new. I would say that in general They help a solid minority of patients who get them, so it's usually, particularly for the antibodies, under 50% of people who receive them are helped. Now, that's if you look at everybody. What's interesting is that there is a subset, and for example, for one of the drugs that we have a fair amount of data on, which is an antibody called ipilimumab, that's the one that's approved, we know that for a pretty good minority, about 20% of people, will live for at least three years after having gotten a course of that treatment. So there's sort of what statisticians call a tail end of the curve, a subset of people who do really, really well. And then there are certainly people who aren't helped at all. For the T-cell therapy, the genetically engineered T-cells, the numbers there of people treated is much smaller, but right now it's looking like roughly half are helped. Now, when we say helped, we have to think of what do we mean? These might be people whose tumors shrink significantly. They might still have cancer in their bodies. Some of these people do go into remission and survive for a long time. So when we say help, there's sort of a range for what that means. But basically the idea is we believe they're doing better than they would have without this therapy. And in some cases, they're doing a lot better.
0: So this sounds like it's a tool in the arsenal, but not the end of cancer or anything like that.
2: Yes, that's right. And that's something that we thought about a lot in writing this story. You know, we certainly don't want people to think that this is the cure for cancer, for all cancers, for all melanomas, nothing like that. It's not. It's really a paradigm shift in treating cancer, and it's, we think, the beginning of really using immunotherapy in a much broader way than it's been used before.
0: And so is that what makes it a breakthrough for this year?
2: I think there are a couple of things that make it a breakthrough. One is just that the clinical trials are really impressive. I mean, we want to be careful not to overstate them, but we also want to be careful not to underplay them. The people in these trials have very advanced disease. Other therapies have not worked for them. You know, many of them are months away from dying. And in some of these people, the therapies have really saved them at least in the short term and there are certainly people who who had these therapies years ago because it takes a long time to develop these treatments so some of them in some cases the testing started some time ago and you know they're still doing great so that's one reason I mean the clinical trials are you know legitimately recording data that's really promising and hopeful in some cancers where there really has not been a lot of hope for a very long time. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece is, I think, this paradigm shift in thinking about a new way of treating cancer, not targeting the tumor, targeting the immune system. And I think as we look ahead, researchers are hoping that we can kind of start to combine treatments in different ways to really make them even more potent and last even longer and also help more people. We don't really know why some people don't respond to immunotherapies and some people respond so well. And that's something that researchers are hoping to understand. But for now, you know, there's a lot of interest in this, a lot of hope that we can use this to treat different kinds of tumor types, a sense that people are less likely to develop resistance to these therapies the way they might to certain other drugs. So people are, are really pretty excited about it.
0: Okay. Jennifer Cousin Frankel, thanks so much. Thank you. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, is here to talk about the top stories from the year 2013. I'm Sarah Crespi. Okay, Dave, so first up, we have a story on the comforts of science. Why did this story on the strength of scientific belief make it into the top 10? Well,
3: this was probably one of our more controversial stories of the year, and it really has to do with this idea that... There are no atheists in foxholes, as they say, people that are under very stressful and dire situations, even if they're not religious, often turn to God. And this study went out to see, well, might people who maybe aren't very religious turn to science in similar circumstances? And they interviewed some folks who were about to compete in a very stressful race, also some students that were asked to write about their own mortality. And what they found was that these people, when they were in these very stressful or dire situations, turned to scientific belief. They started agreeing with some very fundamental scientific concepts and sort of affirming their belief in those concepts.
0: So stress was basically activating belief rather than activating a particular belief.
3: That's right. And what the researchers say is the one thing that science and religion have in common is they both are attempts to help us make sense of and understand our world. So it makes sense that we return to one of these two things when everything else seems lost.
0: Okay. So next up, we have another story on human behavior. And in this case, we're talking about the adaptive advantage of monogamy now, I think perhaps the image at the top of this article is what <laughs> it drew so much attention.
3: Right. we This is definitely one of our most popular stories of the year, and uh, we – headed it with a picture of the newly married British royals with their brand new baby. So I'm sure that didn't hurt with the traffic, but the story itself is actually also very fascinating. And it has to do with this idea of primates, among all mammals, have a very high degree of monogamy. It's somewhere in the range of 27% of species versus only about 5% of the rest of mammals. And scientists have for a long time tried to figure out why is this the case? What are the advantages that monogamy confers to our and other primate species that maybe it doesn't confer to other mammals.
0: This study actually claims that Monogamy is linked with infanticide. It's a pretty bold claim. What kind of evidence?
3: It's a very bold claim. And what the researchers did was they reconstructed a bunch of trees of life and looked at the behaviors and the evolution of a variety of primate species. They looked at over 200 of them. And what they found is that, at least according to their models, the thing that makes the most sense is the reason that men and women or males and females stick together in these species is because the male has to stick around to protect his infant. Otherwise, a rival male will come in, kill the infant, which is common in a lot of animal species, and mate with the female to produce his own offspring.
0: Was there a lot of support for this finding when it came out?
3: (laughs) Well, not everybody is a fan. In fact, a study that came out just after this study showed that infanticide doesn't play a role in monogamy. So the jury's still out.
0: So next we have what I consider the weirdest story from the year. In fact, when I first saw this on Facebook, I just assumed it was a hoax and I did not go any further. Then it showed up on our daily news site, which made me reconsider my opinion.
3: Which means, of course, it's not a hoax. Um, (laughs) This is definitely our most bizarre story of the year. It has to do with a tiny skeleton, six inches long or 15 centimeters long, found in a pouch in a ghost town in Chile's Atacama Desert. Now, you'll have to go to the site to see a picture of this thing, but it's a very bizarre skeleton. It looks kind of like a human being, although very tiny, but the head is very alien-like. And there's also some other strange features about the skeleton. So so as you said, Sarah, a lot of people thought this was a hoax. You yeah. know? And in fact, there was a documentary going on that was investigating whether this body had come from a ufo but enter science and a researcher did some analysis of the bones consulted some experts and it turns out this isn't a hoax this is really a human being the big question at this point is how did this person get this way was this a fetus that died in birth and had some severe developmental abnormalities was this a very tiny person that was born very tiny and died very very young there's a lot of unanswered questions here but the story itself is so fascinating that it's definitely worth your time.
0: Well, I hope we hear more about it in 2014. And this would not be a best of podcast without a mention of microbes, our microbial friends, which of the many shocking findings that we learned of this year made the cut.
3: Yeah, we've been all over microbes this year, microbes in our guts, microbes in our skin. And this story has to do with microbes in the sky. It turns out there are Billions of bacteria floating up there in the atmosphere. Who knows what they're doing, but some speculation, according to the study, is they may be doing everything from mating eating and forming an ecosystem up there to even influencing the weather.
0: What can't they do? (laughs) So people have known that there's some kind of organisms way up in the sky for a long time, but it's always been really hard to measure. Can you talk a little bit about how they changed that this year?
3: Well, the researchers in the study took a ride on nine NASA airplane flights that were aimed at studying hurricanes. And while these planes were doing their thing, the researchers essentially scooped up Some microorganisms from the air, brought them back to the lab and studied them and found that there are a lot of different species up there that seem to be doing a lot of potentially different things, although they're not exactly sure what they're doing yet. And that even if they're not doing a whole lot up there, there could be water vapor condensing or even forming ice around them. And if that's the case, these microbes could be seeding clouds, which could be affecting the weather. So the next time you see a cloud, Thank bacteria.
0: (laughs) For the last story we're going to talk about, this is not all the stories from the site. We have a bizarre finding from the usually bizarre world of quantum physics. What did we learn about quantum entanglement this year?
3: Well, quantum physics is always great fodder for a best-of story because there's always really strange things being found in the world of quantum physics. And this is one of the stranger ones. And this has to do with a phenomenon known as quantum entanglement. And basically the idea is if you've got two quantum particles, even if they're light years apart from each other, the mere act of measuring one instantaneously changes the state of the other one. Now this new study comes along and makes that bizarre phenomenon even more bizarre. It finds that... These particles don't even have to exist at the same time to be entangled.
0: Okay, spooky. What does it mean for some of the applications that we might see down the line for quantum entanglement?
3: Well, good question. Always hard to find applications for these things. But one expert consulted for the story says it opens up people's minds and it might be useful for quantum computing Or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, as I said, that's not all the stories. Do you want to give hints for what else is on the site?
3: Well, we've got five more stories. You can see our full top ten list on the site, including our most popular story of the year.
0: Well, what else is on the site just for this week?
3: Well, Sarah, for Science Now, we've got a story about evidence of inbreeding among Neanderthals. Also a story about how computers change the way we learn. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got some new items about what the future of science funding is in the United States. And finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science. Science Live is on a bit of a hiatus, but it's returning January 9th with a chat about why we should save carnivores, just what impact they play on the ecosystems they live in. So be sure to check out all these stories and the rest of the top 10s. On the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, and the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes the December 20th, 2013 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org A-A-A-S join. That's aaasorg join.